I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Billboard Charpy Podcast. Gary Trust here in Nashville. Literally looking at the Nashville State Capitol, right? Right outside the hotel room. And uh, through time travel, obviously, we're hearing this after Nashville. I'm back in New York now, is the plan. So, back in time, here with Sky Daniels, Program Director of KCSN Los Angeles. Thank you for coming on, Sky. Well, thank you for having me, Gary. And, and you're right, it's not only uh, time travel, but... Uh, we elected to meet in the middle. Uh, Nashville seeming is a good place to sit down and have a conversation during this, the Americana Fest. Uh, right. And there's a lot of activity in Nashville this week. Yeah, there's the NAB, there's Americana Fest, c- kind of like the old days, right, when there were all these industry conventions. There's we action. We don't even have these anymore. There's action and, and, and a whole lot of it. And, and I know y- you uh, understand and feel the burgeoning development of, of Americana and it, you see how palpable it is here. You see, well, just a, a look at the awards show tonight and the roster of superstar names and great new artists breaking out. And as any great convention, and, and certainly Billboard has had a, a lot of great events that they have put on in their day, you're reminded. You know, you get that sense of this is all happening, and it's tangible. And you get blown away, you know, by new artists and discovery, and you get, you know, reminded and rewarded about some of the legends. I know you're going to talk uh, to Timothy B. Schmidt, right. who's one of the kindest, greatest, you know, legends we have. It, it, it's a wonderful atmosphere at a time when Nashville, uh, as a music scene, is expanding beyond just music row, you know. So we're really here when this city is as, as alive as it's ever been in music. That's what we've been hearing from people who live in Nashville, just how in the last six or seven years, the construction, we see it everywhere. You've seen it here while while you've been here. It reminds me of of when I first went to Seattle, and it was this was like the late 80s, and it it was just starting to grow, and how since then, every time I go to Seattle, I count the cranes. And so coming into yesterday, I went around and saw 14 cranes building new skyscrapers. I went, well, Nashville's taken off. Right. And it's it's good, obviously, for the economic growth. But there's there's other people who kind of miss that you know, the old-time charm that Nashville's always been known for. Well, one of this that's an interesting fact that, that we've had a lot of artists that come through and 
when talking to younger artists and for, for many times, uh, and particularly the singer-songwriters, uh, some of them that are based in Los Angeles, who have elected to move to Nashville largely because, A, they are seeing the the songwriting community here continue to grow and evolve. They're seeing a much more robust rock scene being developed in this town. But they also see the affordability. Right. Where they can come here and they can get a nice place and they can afford to live and they're within two miles of a club or a studio where they can create music and build an audience and then they can go back and actually have a relatively comfortable, you know, home to live in. Whereas, as you know, in New York and L.A., not so easy to pull that one off. <laughs> All right. Uh, tell everyone, uh, Sky, about, I want to get into your background, but sure. KCSN is, is where you are now. It's an, it's a, in the industry called an adult alternative right. or AAA station. It, it has parts of Americana. Music yes. is a big part of its identity. But how do you describe KCSN? And, and what do you do there? What's what's the job of a program director Ooh. these days? Um KCSN, while it is largely a AAA, which is a very inclusive format, right. you know, and it does uh, by design everywhere. Uh, most AAA radio stations are inclusive of eras, genres, and styles, uh, and to varying degrees. Ours uh, in Los Angeles, we originally, prior to my getting there, it was a root station. So there was a strong Americana foundation with our longtime audience. And plus, in Los Angeles, you know, he mentioned Timothy B. Schmidt earlier. You know, you can say that some of the beginnings of Americana, certainly roads lead back to people like Chris Hillman, you know, the Fine Burrito Brothers. So there's always been that scene in L.A. Um, that, that evolved from country rock. And now we see such a mix of, of uh, not only what we would consider American artists, but even some in, you know indie songwriters, who in another era, they'd be Tom Petty, you know they'd be John Mellencamp, they'd be Bruce Springsteen, they'd be a mainstream rock artist. But that doesn't seem to be an idea, at least in the industry, that resonates as much as Americana, and or even country does. Um, so. We're starting to see a lot of artists that come out that they're square pegs in the Americana thing, but they have that one thing. They have a passion in their songwriting. They typically represent a, a very uh, every man, you know, viewpoint. Uh, it's typically, you know, uh, uh, the blue collar identity. Uh, and it's something that, you know, personally, coming from Youngstown, Ohio, I, I certainly relate to, you know, blue-collar sensibilities. And when we started the station uh, originally, ironically, I really reinforced the more indie uh, aspects of the station. I brought in Nick Harcourt from KCRW, uh, who had helped build a great, great platform there. Morning Becomes Eclectic. I brought in Mark Suvel who had been the music director at Indy 103, which was you know a radio station that gained a lot of notoriety for artist development. And we really were focused on pushing the new music identity of the and the local identity of, of Los Angeles and the indie scene. And I think over the last three or four years, I've watched a palpable growth 
of artists in the Americana scene. And, and, you know, people will point to the Holy Trinity, Chris Stapleton and Jason Isbell and Sturgill Simpson. But due to the nature of KCSN and, and wanting to support a lot of developing artists, we do a lot of live in-studio visits. And you start to see routinely these artists coming out of this field. The heart of everything is great songwriting. And some of them, much like AAA, they lean a little more rock. Some lean a little more country. Some are invoking a little bit of Memphis soul and R&B. Some are even utilizing electronic sounds. And you start realizing, if Tom Petty came out today, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers would be an Americana band. So uh, we all know that sometimes we need in the industry some sort of galvanizing umbrella. What's the handle? I joked, uh, we had Brent Cobb in uh, two days ago in Los Angeles. And he's got a laconic southern sense of humor. And I joked with him and I said, all right, Brent, this is the moment where I have to have you declare. What are you? Are you country? Are you rock? Are you Americana? You only get to pick one. And he laughed because he understood that. It was like, why? Can I be all of the above? Yeah, and I think part of it, it always comes back to this so much now, is that music fans have now grown up, younger music fans, in a world where there's less, there's fewer barriers because of iTunes and YouTube. So I don't think it's a coincidence that Americana seems to be hitting new heights of popularity where there aren't these uh, strict format lines because... That's how everyone's uh, musical sensibility is, is forming more now. It's, it's, it's really interesting in that we have it, it, something you and I have discussed before. The one thing about being a non-com, a public radio station in Los Angeles, it's a power center. And, and I recognize uh, that it's a blessing to be able to have a radio station that is, due to the fact that it is a non-commercial public station, we are driven by inspiring the audience to care. You know, we are, our mission is to get the audience to care so much about what they're hearing on the radio that they will volunteer to give us money when they don't have to. It's an honor system. Right. So as a result, you really have to, everything you have to do has got to be meaningful. It can't be the same as what they're hearing down the dial on commercial radio. So when we start to look at the older audience, they love radio. They love the medium of radio. And when they hear a station like KCSN, to them, it's sort of a, a neo-free form. You know, it takes them back to, if, if they're of a certain age, when FM radio was more of the free form variety, broader, you know, more inclusive, uh, right before perhaps AOR started to get a little too tightly formatted. And they celebrate it like I never thought I'd hear radio like this again. But to your point, when we have young listeners adopt this, the amazing thing and and challenging thing in, in some respects is they never had a horizontally inclusive medium. They're used to Pandora. If you like this kind of music, this is what you'll hear. In the commercial radio spectrum, if you hit that button, this is the kind of music. Hearing it, broad-based era, styles, genres, 
they're, they're almost puzzled by it. They're like, I've literally had young people say, I love your station. It's like my personal music collection, but you can't do that on the radio. And I go, I appreciate the first sentiment you express. You've heard the station, clearly. We did do it, so what do you mean we can't? And you understand that they've never heard this blending and curating of these different styles and eras, and it's not their fault. And yet we have to really take those listeners who are of that open-mindedness, who do appreciate the broad-based and inclusive approach, and we have to literally get them to get their head around, oh, so radio can be like this. And I've had both internally, obviously we're on a college campus and we mentor and work with a lot of students in either music industry studies, broadcasting, or music itself. And I'm just watching them say, so how is it that you get to mix all this stuff? This is more like, again, my home collection. This isn't like radio. I go, but radio used to be like this. And then here's the next kicker, which you'll invariably hear. I know my mom and dad tell me that this reminds them of when they were young. And we listen in the car together now because we all can agree on your station. And I think, well, that's good. My dad didn't agree with me on my choices of music when I was young, so we must be headed in the right direction. Are you worried about uh, future radio for younger listeners? Yes, I, I am. I am petrified. I am petrified. Um, it's when a listener, particularly when a student, comes into our facility, and we've had a great many, you know, I, I occasionally speak at a number of the different classes. Uh, I'll be a guest lecturer at a number of the classes in any of the media departments, and I've come to ask the question at the beginning of, of each meeting, how many of you listen to the radio? And no hands will go up. Yeah. Now, we know. We've seen the statistics. Nielsen certainly has the statistics that 92% of, of young people do listen to the radio. But when you probe and you speak to them and you gain enough of their confidence in, in that closed classroom setting, it'll come out, well, but it's not cool to like radio. And that's a very disheartening fact for someone who's long been an advocate, as you know. I've been in radio. I've, I've been in publishing. I've, I've been in, in, in d retail. I've, I've been in digital development. I, I've been on the label side. I'm in it for the music. But I have, you know, I still am that kid with the transistor radio under the, the covers that grew up with a love for radio, and it drove me to make it a career choice. And when you hear someone who is involved in music, is seeking to be in some you know, area of either performer, music industry, broadcasting, and they say, but it's not cool to like radio, it's heartbreaking. And it, it's going to require, and frankly, one of the reasons why I feel uh, good about the mission that we're on at KCSN is we did go through a period in, in, in the mid-90s when we saw a lot of consolidation in ownership. 
And at the same time, a few years later, we saw the advent of the Internet. So on one hand, you had the consolidation of programming that in many cases it was an autocratic top-down. Right. You know, there were going to be the senior vice presidents of programming who were going to identify the best and, and most you know, likely to succeed music, and then they were going to send that down. And to varying degrees amongst the, the broadcast you know, corporate companies, some were iron fists, that you play the list that the that the company gives out. Some were a little more, you know, they allowed a little more input from the local operators. But by and large, there was uh, a, certainly a, a, an aggregation that it was happening at the top. Now, when you, to be fair to those people that maybe owned eight stations in a market, well, they had to delineate amongst their own stations. You know, they couldn't have them all crossing over and sharing the same music. So... From a strategic standpoint, they did need to say, all right, this is going to be your lane, and this is going to be your lane, and this is going to be your lane. Now, yes, some music will be palatable to these different lanes, and there will be crossover hits, but focus on this lane. So there became more of a vertical programming afoot, particularly in commercial radio. Suddenly the Internet comes around and tells every you know, digital native, you can have whatever you want whenever you want. You don't even have to look for it. Just speak into the microphone and we'll pull that artist up for you. So you had those two forces afoot where you know, the understandable strategic vertical programming tech that, that commercial radio took and the wild, wild west expanse of the internet, you know, it, it, it collided. And who would choose one thing yeah. over a varied menu? But ironically, as I said, with young people getting their head around, there can be traditional media that is inclusive and does cover a lot of ground. It's just a foreign idea to them. So when I look at radio from the public radio side. I'm in a one-to-one -one game. Am I? Is the station we're putting together, are the, the host on our radio station, is the music we're playing, are we inspiring these listeners? Are we inspiring them enough to reach into their wallets and say, I know I could listen for free, right. but I care about you so much, I'm going to give you $100. It's sort of like, you know, you're in New York City, you see the buskers. A lot of people will walk by and pretend they throw a buck in, you know. Well, You can't fake it yeah, on, well, on public radio. You either give or you don't. If, 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 if we know when we, you gave us a buck or not. So, so we really have to create a product that inspires that sort of incentive to say, I don't have to pay for it, but I want to pay for it. Conversely, on the commercial side, it's, it's, you know, driven by Wall Street. And Wall Street, you, you have investments, I have investments. I have a, you know, a financial manager. I periodically look over my holdings and I see, ooh, that, that one's performing well. What is it they do? <laughs> Whatever they're doing, it's good. If they're not performing well, right. I don't stop and say, you know, 
even though this stock isn't performing, I know they have good intentions and are doing the best they can, given the context of which their business operates. So I'm just going to hold on to it. It's not how Wall Street works. And radio's biggest challenge at this point is, and it's, it's not just radio, it's a lot of traditional media, it's print. Yeah. It's television. The great irony is, and you know this because you work now, this podcast is an example of pursuing digital media engagement. When new media becomes the source of information for a large part of the populace, it doesn't behoove new media to advocate old media. Like, you know that other media that existed before we got here? You should stick with that. It's still good. No, they get told radio is dead. Well, I can tell you firsthand, I'm at a radio station in Los Angeles where the passion level from our audience is as great as I've ever seen. And as you know, I've been fortunate I've worked at some iconic radio stations and have seen great, passionate response. And this station eclipses the passion level of of any I ever worked at. And it just tells me there can still be a fervor from an audience for radio. But radio as a medium has to recognize we're not going to win the battle with the 5,000, you know, entertainment choices that people have by being safer and less than. That's the strategy that's been taken. We'll play nothing but the absolutely proven hits. We'll, we won't ever talk. We're just, we're going to really keep, we're going to play you know, seven records over and over because that's the safe bet. I don't know if that's a winning philosophy when it's medium versus medium and how not just the audience, but how the agencies, the advertisers respond. TV has done a great job. TV has gone out and expressly acknowledged there are what they call the quality shows. Many of them are on cable. They recognize that those shows aren't built to be mass appeal, 25 million viewers a week. They're pristine. They're built on quality. They're drawing the biggest movie stars to them because it's the only place that there are quality scripts and there's great, diverse programming. And TV does a great job of celebrating that so that a madman it may only have a million viewers a week but if you read collectively across all forms of media madman is a triumph in there that the forefront of a golden age of television in radio radio only validates through one thing how what's your ratings And it needs to, for the sake of the appreciation of the medium and the engagement of the medium, it needs to, not just on the public radio side, which, look, by our model, we do pursue quality first. But on the commercial side, you know, somewhere in the hierarchy, someone has to say, you know what, these are going to be our mass appeal, broad-based ratings getters, and these are going to be 
are incubators of quality and really knowing what's going on and inspiring the audience. But somehow they do it in TV, and in many cases, parent companies are the same parent companies, but in radio, it's just the ratings. Yeah. And and that's something that, that concerns me greatly. And I hope, you know, at some point, uh, sadly, what I've seen in my 40-year career is it's only when you hit dire straits that you take chances. And I'm hoping, ironically, when I came over to this side, to the public radio side, I realized I have a freedom. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. No. An anecdote that, that could be meaningful in this conversation, as, as you know, uh, and as few people know, I had, had health issues, um, you know, prior to, coming to our, to, prior to coming to KCSN, I had health issues, and I was really considering retirement because I had some serious health issues. So I was thinking, you know what, maybe I'll just, like, do a weekend jock job just for the fun of it. I don't want to just, you know, retire and sit around. I'm too young for that. Now I could. Luckily, I, you know, I, I made a good living in, in my life and I could afford to retire, but I knew I'd get bored. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just be a weekend jock. And when I started to, to look around Los Angeles, I knew there's no sense of entitlement. You know, just because Sky Daniels says, oh, I want to come back to radio. Yeah. It's not like, oh, well, here, we've got the, you can run this radio station, Sky, and do whatever you want. So I was thinking, well, I'll be a weekend jock somewhere and do a show, and it, I'll play the format, whatever. It'll just be fun, or as much fun as I could have playing Boston for the third time that night. <laughs> but it's in my blood, so I was thinking about it. And then someone brought up the KCSN opening. I thought, I'm not going to work at a college station. I'm not working in public radio. I'm from big institutions. That's not what I do. I came and I saw the facility. It's a $125 million, gorgeous performing arts center. It's state-of-the-art studios. And it's, as I told you, eight minutes from my house. So I have no commute. All those things were wow factors. But I still was like, eh. And at the end of the meeting, when they offered me the job, they said, you've got enough credibility and, and insight into this business. 
whatever you think we should do, that's what we're going to do. So we will never interfere with you in terms of your programming choices. Whatever you think we should do, that's what we'll do. And I walked out the back door of the studio, and across the, the way, there's a food court. And there was a Burger King. And for some reason, I got to the bottom step, and I looked at the Burger King, and I thought, if I went in and applied for a job at that Burger King, the manager of that place wouldn't say, whatever you think we should do, that's what we'll do. I thought, I'm never going to hear those words in broadcasting again, let alone in Los Angeles. I got to think about this job. And so I, I took the job and have made it as much as a mission as I want to build a great station. Our mission, which is on the air, is to support musicians. I'm cognizant. Haven't come from the label side, haven't come from the media side, haven't come from the publishing side like you have. When you start to know collectively the state of where it is for the artists, I know that it's a time when artists really need overt support. They really do. And as a college, you know, licensed station, they view that as support of the arts. Right. So that's right. a good mission. Yeah. So I have that opportunity, but I'm in Los Angeles. And the one thing I learned from being, you know, at the senior level at a few labels in either New York or L.A. is when those executives at record companies in New York, L.A., and, yes, Nashville, hear a song on the radio, it gives them a sense firsthand that this can be a hit. This sounds great on the radio. We should continue to champion this artist. So I took that awareness and responsibility very seriously, knowing that I remember when I first came to radio in L.A. and I worked at KMET, I can remember the Jimmy Iovines of the world calling me on the request line and going, man, why aren't you playing this record? It's so great. Or conversely going, oh, I just heard you play that new artist we signed. It sounds so good on the radio, man. Thank you. We're believers in this one. We're going to break this record. You're doing the right thing. So you knew you had an undue influence on some of the decision-making that comes on the labels. All of this went through my mind when I thought, and then the final thing that, that probably got me here, ironically, was I remember when I worked at a trade publication, uh, I had become friends with Nick Harcourt when he was working in Woodstock. Yeah. And I was the alternative editor at R&R, as you know, and AAA editor. And Nick told me, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take this job at KCRW. And I went, Nick, what are you doing? You go into public radio, you're going to disappear. Do you know how expensive it is in Los Angeles? Nick, you need to rethink your position. You've got a quality of life in Woodstock. I don't know if I do that. Yeah. Well, fast forward five years, and Nick did a tremendous job elevating the profile of Mount Morning Becomes Eclectic into an international tastemaker. And so ironically, as I thought, should I do this? I thought, well, work for Nick. And then I ultimately hired him to come with me and join the mission. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the things. I Before we did this podcast, you were speaking on a panel with some other um, adult alternative program directors, Bruce Warren from WXPN Philly, some some other stations. You uh, you said something I almost the opposite of what I hear a lot of program directors say, is that you really invested in 
an artist's livelihood mm. because a lot of times program directors will say it's not my job mm. for an artist's uh, career. Mm. If they give me a hit, I'll play it. But I guess that would make sense, right? You're coming from a label background, coming from a radio background that you see all sides of it. And what's good for the artists ultimately is good for a radio station. It's good for everyone. The I appreciate that you, you recognize it, and I would expect you to recognize it, because when you do as you do, as you study, you know, the, the, the contingent, the way the business either works or doesn't work, the, in, the overall environment of the music industry, which Billboard is the Bible, so there are many chapters and verses in the Bible. And, and when, you, when you try to get as, you know, understanding a purview of how they all can work together, it has been lost. Now, I was fortunate enough as, as a youngster, uh, growing up outside of Cleveland, Ohio, to uh, the station that really uh, captivated me as a teenager was WMMS in Cleveland, yeah. uh, one of the legendary rock stations of all time. And Kid Leo, who would go on, he now works at Sirius and has got a great relationship working with Bruce Springsteen. Kid Leo once said a, a quote that I never forgot. He says, it's not our business to break artists. It's our pleasure. <laughs> and that stuck with me throughout my commercial radio career. And it really resonates today because, as we know, the good news about the Internet is it has allowed so many artists to independently produce and expose music. And it has allowed millions upon millions of people to discover music on their own terms and in their own pursuit. But what it has conversely done is, for better or worse, it devalued music as a commodity. Um, we happen to be the entertainment medium that came in three megabyte parcels. A movie is 465 megabytes, and in the dial-up era, no one was going to tie up the family phone for two days to download a movie. Or an audiobook, which would be some 65 megabytes, no one was going to download a, an audiobook and tie up the phone for three hours. We were the ones that had the, the classic three minute and 30 second song, which came out to about 3.5 megabytes, and we'll tie up the phone for 15 minutes to get that song for free. Yeah. And that started a generational sense of, oh, music is free. I get music, I get it for free. And as, as a commodity, it, it, it literally took value out of music. And in turn, it's always argued, and, and Billboard certainly represents this as accurately and as fairly as it can, no superstars. Taylor Swift's not complaining. U2's not complaining. Kanye West is not complaining. Nor should they be. But there are so many, both legendary artists and new you know, developing artists, they can't earn a living. They don't have the money to pay rent. They barely have enough money to get crowded eight into a van and have gas money and food money. And God forbid that the van breaks down somewhere in Omaha. It always breaks down. No d disrespect to our friends in Omaha, but it seems to break down somewhere in Nebraska all the time. The van breaks down. I'm cognizant of 
if we want, unlike many programmers, if we want to have a fertile, I, our station, one of the other, you know, things in the old stop and smell the roses part of Sky's life, we have an orange grove right across from our radio station. It's a legitimate large orange grove. Oh. And in the spring, when I'm walking from my parking space through the orange grove to the studio, I literally stop and smell the orange blossoms. I bring up that analogy because if that orange grove didn't exist and wasn't tended to, and if it wasn't cared for, no oranges would grow. And if I was an orange juice manufacturer, what would I do? Go back and pick up old rotten oranges and recycle them and think I'm going to make a living? No. So when programmers say it's not my business to sell music, shame on you. Yeah. Because it is not only your business, it is your moral obligation. And if you don't care about nurturing and supporting artists one day I hate to sound like the doomsday guy but you won't have a lot of quality music to choose from and you'll go out of business and you'll be the person struggling to find your way in life so you're right when I hear that comment from peers and radio it makes my blood boil and it always has They can't take it from me if they try. I lived through those early days. So many times. Uh, I reached out to a long time someone that I had helped break in the beginning of his career, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And I asked Tom, Will you help me? And will you play a benefit for me? And you know, coming from the label side, being a key man for a lot of huge artists, I knew the million reasons why he should say no. There's only one reason why he would say yes, because he knew that since day one, I had always cared about him and, and had his back. And so when he said, yeah, I'll do it for you, it was a moment because I realized, you know, fortunately, by having this sense of commitment to the artist, there were superstars now that, that recognized it and were willing to support us. When Paul called, you know, uh, first of all, you get a phone call saying, Paul McCartney wants to speak to you. And I was driving, I had a meeting in Orange County, and I'm like, what? And sure enough, he calls and he starts raving about the radio station and, and you, know, you talk about humble being so humble and such a fan yeah. such a fan of radio and he's telling me stories about you know what the radio meant to him and how this and hearing his music on kcsn and all his friends are talking about it and how man it's so great to have radio like this man this is this is how it should be man you know paul uses man a lot and you know, I hung up going, what just happened? And then later, as it would come to learn, one of the friends he alluded to was Ringo. Yeah. 
And Ringo has become a donor and, and a massive supporter. And just recently, Ringo expressed it in a publication how, ironically, this this is really uh, something that kind of, when you look at it in context, it shows there's still a, a possibility of a power of radio. Ringo talked in uh, a business magazine of note about how overnight... In 30 days, the Beatles had become the the most streamed artist in history on Spotify. Yeah. And clearly this, as you know, because you work in in an institution that has silos, you know, there are very many people in different editorial departments that have different agendas. Clearly this was the digital media, you know, editor who wanted Ringo to proclaim how Spotify and streaming was where it was at. And he turned around and he said, no, I don't really listen to streaming, man. There's this radio station in Los Angeles, KCSN. I love that radio station. It turns me on to all new music. It's a great mixed bag. I listen to it every day. So I'm sitting here thinking, huh, Ringo's no dummy. He knows he's in a, in a huge business publication talking about becoming the largest, you know, most streamed artist in Spotify history. And he's still willing to overtly proclaim his love for this radio station. And so when you talk about a sense of humility, uh, a sense of marvel, I sit back sometimes and go, I've had so many of these superstar artists and, and two, the only sole remaining survivors of the Beatles, you know, overtly express their love for this radio station, that's not supposed to happen. Right. You know, a kid from Youngstown, Ohio, <laughs> he's supposed to be in awe of Paul and Ringo and Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and you too. I'm not on that earth. I, I'm from Youngstown. I don't belong in that stratosphere. Certainly nothing that I'm part of merits their attention but when they profess their love i'm quick to to remind myself radio when done right is such an intimate one-to-one relationship and those artists came up in an era when that was a very powerful community and they still want it to be so whenever there's a sense of validation I think, hey, I got the two remaining Beatles love my station. Who cares what anybody else thinks? I got the Beatles going for me. <laughs> yeah, you'd said on on the panel earlier that uh, sometimes if uh, you go to a show and there's a huge crowd and everyone's into it and you're not playing that band, you you kept saying that I feel like a failure. I'm not doing my job. I, I think if if the two Beatles alive or saying you're doing a good job. I think we can take failure well, out of the, the equation, Scott. And, and obviously, I, you know, I'll, listen, I, I've been around long enough. Uh, I've, I've had incredibly high highs in life and I've, and I've had some challenges because this is this, this, you know, the entertainment business is a volatile one. But I am blessed and I never, you know, coming from where I'm from, I'm supposed to be an out-of-work steel worker with hopefully eight fingers intact and that's all you're entitled to and as the great lebron james once said in northeast ohio nothing is given everything is earned 
And being in Los Angeles, uh, sometimes, you know, in the entertainment business, uh, entitlement rears its ugly head and, and people, and it probably happened to me early in my career when I had early success, you know, they start to feel like it's them. I, it's me. I did that. I don't, I don't kid myself anymore. If there's anything, I, I'm fortunate enough to have learned enough and, and been around enough and shared and been mentored by enough people to understand that if you have a great sense of purpose and what you're doing has the best of intentions and you're trying to intelligently imply those good intentions knowingly, you know, when you've worked on the label side, when you've worked on the radio side, when you've worked on the publication side, when you've worked on the retail side, and you know the four wheels on the wagon, it's then your job to say, I know in the middle of that wagon there's a heart that's beating. And if we do our job the right way for the right reasons, it will, it will engender support. Now, do I go into that thinking, like, the Beatles and Tom Petty and you too. No, I don't. I don't go into it thinking, trust me, they're all going to love what we're doing. But it does say to everyone, if it can happen here at KCSN in Northridge, it can happen anywhere. And I implore a lot of my peers in radio, put your heart back into it. Put your heart back into it so that our collective heart keeps beating. Well, Sky, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, give us a good song to play out with. Beatles, Tom Petty, what should we, what should we play? You, you, you seem to know what music people are going to like. So, since Paul McCartney and Ringo seem to agree. I, I would say, you know, a song that's always... Uh, the song that has taken a, a special place in my life for a lot of reasons uh, is a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker song, Learning to Fly. Because it just speaks about how, you know, every day we get up and we have aspirations, we have dreams, and sometimes we get knocked down. But, you know, that doesn't mean we don't quit looking up. As, as the great Casey Kasem used to say, you know, have your head in the stars and your feet on the ground. So I would pick learning to fly because even after all these years, every day I got to figure out how to make my wings move. So that's the song I pick. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.